0: Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Last week, my co host Alex Ashkin chatted in part one of his interview with Indiana University archaeology professor emeritus Richard Wilk about food and what it means to the world's cultures and societies. Wilk throughout his career has combined an interest in archaeology and anthropology in an effort to understand better who we are as human beings. Toward the end of last week's Big Talk, Ashkin and Wilk touched upon how cultural cuisines are being shared across boundaries and borders these days. It's a double-edged sword, More people are learning about the ingredients and cooking methods of more cultures, a good thing. But at the same time, those cultural markers are becoming perhaps less authentic, as they're inevitably changed, and that might not be such a good thing. This week, Wilk expands on his observations of the local becoming global, and he touches upon many more ideas in the study of, well, us, people and the groups we form. So let's get right to part two of Alex Ashkin's conversation with Richard Wilk. This is Big Talk. It's um, hard to
1: think of the things that bring us together anymore. When I was a kid, everybody watched, say, 60 Minutes. It was something you could discuss the next on Monday morning with your office mates, because that's something everybody watched. Well, you know, now we're divided into a thousand different media markets in the same way. It, it really reduces any sense of community or solidarity that people have. I don't know if there's an answer to that though. You see it in social media. Some things bring people together and some things keep us in smaller and smaller segments if you wanted to just study the world of well back 40 years ago you could say there was east coast rap and there was west coast rap now what have you got now you got like a thousand different subdivisions and you go to any country and there, there will be various kinds of hip-hop artists in in their language appropriating their Past, um, genres of music so whereas you used to be able to sit down and say oh I'm an ethnomusicologist I'm interested in electronic music well now you've got to subdivide it even finer and finer and finer same thing happens in academia instead of generalists we've produced a nation of scholars who have to focus on some tiny little segment of a problem because we've become that specialized. And there's so much published out there. No one can really, I I couldn't read all the anthropology journals. I used to be able to, there were four. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's like dozens and dozens and blogs and it's really um, become smaller and smaller. What did we used to say? you know more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing and nothing about everything i worry about that
2: as you were sort of describing this process instantly that was one of the first things i thought was sort of how media news consumption the way we um side of the wise, I believe is sort of the term these days, our lives into very specific subcategories has really shaped our beliefs. Now, one group you've started uh, spending a little bit of time studying in recent, uh, recent times is sort of the global cosmopolitan billionaire. (laughs) (laughs) This year in February, you and IU-PhD anthropology candidate Patrice Barros authored an article for the conversation titled, Private Planes, Mansions, and Superyachts, What Gives Billionaires like Musk and Abramovich Such a Massive Carbon Footprint? In the introduction of the article, you mentioned that your field of study drove you to examine how all the wealth translated into consumption and the resulting carbon footprint. Why do you think that this is an important concept to communicate to the public writ large, and do you think it's possible to persuade readers to reconsider their own consumption habits by exploring the consumption and habits of the uber wealthy?
1: Great question and like all good questions it's got a lot of different answers i think the first one is that we have a huge imbalance on the planet we have countries like the us where the average person is emitting 15 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per capita mm-hmm. and then we got countries like you know mozambique where it's probably less than 2 tons but that concealed averages are not great to work with. You know, We have people here in the US who are probably responsible for one or two tons, people living independently out in rural areas, mm-hmm. people who are too poor to consume a lot of high carbon goods or do a lot of traveling. So in, in one sense, looking at billionaires is trying to get us to think about inequality as an essential aspect of the environmental crisis that we're facing with climate change and the destruction of natural ecosystems. Unfortunately, what that means on a global basis is that those of us at the high end are going to have to be thinking about cutting back. There is nothing less popular in politics or economics than trying to figure out ways to get people to consume less. Mm
0: -hmm. Because
1: we live in a consumer culture where wealth and prosperity is about consuming more, 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 having more stuff, accumulating more stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of cheered up when I think about the way a lot of younger people are seeking to teach that and resist that to, say, travel less, to waste less, to produce more of their own food, uh, to campaign against overpackaging things, mm-hmm. to live in a tiny house, or to live nomadically or off the grid. I think people are thinking through these issues in a lot of ways, but unfortunately there are limits to what we can do individually because of the uh, infrastructure to mm-hmm. use the current jar- political jargon when you live in a place where you can't get around without a car mm-hmm. you've got to have a car and a lot of foreign students who move to bloomington find that really frustrating because they come from places where you can go anywhere in mass transit where your house is heated by say waste heat from a nearby factory where your electricity is coming from windmills that you can see when you're on the train to work every morning. Those are all things that are beyond our individual power. As much as Americans love to think of themselves as rugged individualists, our lives are shaped by institutions, by Amazon, by Kroger, by all these large corporations and the way they do business and the way that government regulates them and the way we have zoning laws and our preference for single family homes over apartments and all these other structures that are really going to have to change if we're gonna live sustainably. There's a lot of people who think we can invent our way out of this one, or we can kind of find some technology that's gonna fix it and allow us to go on eating and traveling as much as we want but I think the the sad reality is that we're bumping into some upper limits mm-hmm. and that means that a billion and a half Chinese are not going to be able to consume like Americans do today because the planet can't stand it mm-hmm. and are we willing to live in a world which has a permanent kind of consumer class and a permanent kind of live in a tiny apartment with 12 other people and no car class. I personally find that prospect pretty demoralizing. It seems immoral to me at a very fundamental level to be living high on the hog at somebody else's expense.
2: Do you think that there is a way to moderate the production and consumption culture of the United States? And sort of in a way tying towards the production and of CO2 on an individual level. And is there a place for either some form of carbon taxation or incentives to buy carbon offsets or other incentives or penalties that would be built into a hybridized or evolving economic system?
1: Of course, I have hope that there are mechanisms within our present scheme of policymaking and the marketplace that could allow us to live in a more sustainable and practical way. On the other hand, we have what the historian Lisbeth Cohen calls a consumer's republic, where the freedom to consume has kind of crowded out all of the other freedoms that made America such a unique place Hmm. in the world for so long. Freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, those kinds of freedoms. What she says is that the freedom to buy what we want when we want it has superseded all those other kinds of freedom.
2: Hmm.
1: On my days when I'm depressed, I kind of feel like she's right. You listen to the radio in the morning and what are they reporting on? Is the market booming? Are we building more houses? Are we selling more cars? Are we buying the latest round of iPhones? That's how they measure the health of an economy and of a country, not by are we becoming more equal? Have the the super rich Shown any moderation in their consumption. Part of the reason why I was prompted to do the research on billionaires is that, uh, and they—it's hard to do research on billionaires because mm-hmm. they hide so much of their behavior and so much of their consumption, except for things like giant yachts, which they can't make invisible. <laughs> but, but the thing—the uh, thing is. These are the people who are out of control and who set a model for consumer freedom. They can move anywhere they want in the world, they can buy anything they want, and they can live any lifestyle that they particularly choose. Mm -hmm. And they can uh, make their lives longer by access to technologies that the rest of us don't have. One of the dirty secrets that is bound to come out soon is that a lot of these super rich are getting regular infusions of the blood of young children and younger people because medical science has shown that that actually rejuvenates your body but it's like they're vampires Mm -hmm. and i think that's a real illustration of our unwillingness to limit Mm -hmm. anything to put limits on what people can do in Sweden years and years ago they used to have a law that said that the richest person in a country in a company could not make more than 12 times what the lowest paid person in that company is making they gave that up in the 90s but that's the kind of Limitations that we're going to have to be, we're going to have to live with, if we're going to um, survive as a as a species. There's no incentive for a normal middle class person to go scrimping and saving when Bill Gates has just bought a yacht to service his yacht. Yeah. Anything I might save in my lifetime is kind of disappeared in. A week of his life Mm -hmm. so inequality makes it hard to imagine a kind of group effort that would reduce that inequality a carbon tax is a nice idea but poor people pay carbon taxes and it's going to hurt them more than it's going to hurt somebody like Bill Gates I mean for him carbon tax is like yeah right take as much money as I earn in 15 minutes and that'll pay my carbon tax. Until we're willing to talk seriously about inequality and growth, then we're kind of stuck in the imperfect solution. Oh, yeah, let's tax the rich. Well, what's to keep them from moving to Mexico? Uh, Nothing. They already have moved much of their uh, economy offshore
2: looking at the other end of the spectrum i want to highlight a few passages from your 2014 essay for the american anthropology association titled poverty and excess and binge economies and that essay you offered an poignant thesis which is the irony is that in that many ways what you term as gang laborers, learned to cope with their oppressed situation ended up becoming matters of great pride and were deeply embedded in their self-definition as men. Behavior that allowed men to survive being exploited produced a model of masculinity that has proven amazingly durable and is with us in many mutated forms to this day. A lot of this research was more so in uh, late 19th century, early 20th century labor practices, even dating back to early colonial times. Cowboys and pirates, a good way of putting it. (laughs) How has, from the age of pirates and Long John Silver to the days of Roman Abramovich and Elon Musk, how has the consumption economy encouraged a maladaptive behavior amongst modern marginalized gang laborers.
1: Part of that research for me was kind of coming to terms in, with the masculine culture that I grew up in, you know, which even for a middle-class suburban kid like myself involved a lot of masculine rituals and you know, sports and being able to stand pain and, and uh, go through initiation and uh, have a fight with a rival, and then you're supposed to become best friends. And my curiosity about where these models of heroic masculinity came from. You know, when I grew up, we played cowboys and Indians and uh, American soldiers against Nazis And um, girls were not part of our playtime. I went to a boys' summer camp, and it was all about competition. We got points for our achievements. Every week, we could total up our points and see where we were in the competition. And a lot of that, I think, historically comes to us from working-class cultures, people who were actually being exploited really badly. If you ever watched The Deadliest Catch, Mm -hmm. that and like oil roughnecks and to some extent long-distance truckers still have this kind of brotherhood of the road or the shared experience of doing very dangerous work together Mm -hmm. and competing with each other but also caring for each other that goes along with that kind of hardworking masculinity It leads to a kind of competitiveness that runs throughout American life. I've been fortunate to spend a fair amount of time in Sweden and Scandinavia. I've always been surprised by how uncompetitive my colleagues there are. They actually take weekends off. They seem relaxed about where they are and what they're doing. And it's not like they're not masculine it gave me a kind of alternative way of thinking about our own competitive culture it's not just masculine to a large extent the way that women have achieved equality in my lifetime has been to join into a masculine competition and to win in that competition Mm -hmm. but in the process losing the sense of moderation that at one time, um, my mother came from the generation that had to go back to being domestic after Mm -hmm. World War II, after kind of tasting what it was like to be a a full member of society. Mm -hmm. And I saw just how it crushed her throughout her lifetime. But I don't think the answer is for everybody to join in to this kind of highly competitive way of life. One where it's expected that you're going to work yourself to death at just about the same time that you're having kids. You know, instead of creating this kind of endless competition between career and children, which our children definitely perceive has harmed them in, in some very basic ways. Um, so, you know, I worry about how a generation is going to deal with that conflict in a way that's kinder to themselves, male and female, gay, straight, whatever. I think Americans have to learn to be kinder to themselves and relax a bit and not feel like everything is a competition.
2: I would be remiss if I did not discuss a little bit about your time studying in Belize. You have spent quite a bit of time studying with the Kekchi Maya in Belize, something that really is perhaps your formative experience as an anthropologist. In a discussion we had previously, you sort of said that The most engaged you've been in your academic career, particularly engaging with a particular community, has been helping with the Kekchi to ensure that they have proper land sovereignty. Ever since 1995, you've basically been working with various tribes to ensure that they have proper land ownership within Belize, going as so far to testify multiple times as an expert witness amongst the Belizean Supreme Court, including a 2010 decision where you testified on behalf of the Maya Leaders Alliance and the Toledo Alcades Association against the Belizean Attorney General and the Ministry of Natural Resources. So why is this particularly important to you? And secondly, why is it critical for academics like yourself to use your specialized knowledge to advocate for the rights of marginalized populations?
1: When I started doing anthropology, my teachers had all been to, their, to do their field work in different parts of the world in a colonial era or early mm-hmm. post-colonial era where it was just kind of taken for granted that educated white people from rich countries could go and study whoever the hell they wanted. They'd get permission from the government, and then they'd show up in somebody's village and say, hey, I'm here to study people. I kind of absorbed that in graduate school, and it was an incredible shock to my system. The first time I went to a Kekchi village in southern Belize, which was a journey of two days on foot and in a dugout canoe. And I went and I met with the village council. And I said, I'd like to come here and live here and learn your language and and learn how you make a living. And they said, why should we let you come here? What are you (laughs) going to do for us? We're the poorest people in the country. Why are you studying us? Go study some rich people. Why should we let you into our lives? And I went off and I had like a month of the deepest self-doubt and and feelings of inadequacy. And like I had done something completely wrong. You know, other anthropologists didn't have that problem. Well, then I started to realize they were right. I was acting from privilege. I had no right to intrude in their absolute right to intrude into their lives to satisfy my curiosity to get my PhD uh, and produce books that they were never going to be able to read. And when I went back to another village, I sat down with them and and we basically made a deal. Mm -hmm. I said, I will help you in any way I can, if it means writing letters to government or writing grant proposals to uh, get you a new, uh, get you a water system or sanitation. I will do that. And I will pay everybody in the village who I interview or who gives me information or keeps track of their diet or keeps track of their labor. I did get a dissertation out of it. I did eventually get a job and I did a lot of things to try to help. I started a scholarship fund and sent Kekchi kids who graduated primary school, gave them money to go to get a high school education outside the village. When I worked for the U.S. Agency for International Development and for UNICEF, I managed to get a new road network refurbished in southern Belize so that villages were more accessible and were able to get to health care and get their crops to market. I worked on water and sanitation projects. But in my research in 79 and 80, my conclusion was that they had a viable way of life and a sustainable way of surviving in a rainforest environment. They were part of the process of maintaining the richness of that rainforest. But if they didn't get control of their land, they were going to get kicked off or they were going to be pushed off by corporations that wanted to plant oil palms or a Malaysian company that came through in the 90s and cut down huge swaths of the forest to make plywood clear from looking at indigenous groups anywhere else in the Americas. They lose their land, they lose their unique way of life and their knowledge of their environment, mm-hmm. and they start to lose their cultural identity and their kids drift away.
2: Richard Wilk, professor emeritus at Indiana University, director, founder of the Open anthropology institute author and thinker thank you so much for joining me on big talk